Good morning to you all. It is an absolute delight to be here sharing with you. And for you that are online, we welcome you as well. Whether electronically or in person, we are gathering as believers. And that is a delight to God. My name for you that might not know me is Brent Amato. I have the privilege of being one of your elders, and that is a great uh, privilege that I do not take lightly. You can see, obviously, that Pastor Craig is not with us today. He wishes he could be, but he is not. Um, he always says, if you recall, what's his favorite time of the week? Sunday. Sunday. And so it the Lord's Day, and so I want you to know that in his heart he wishes he was here. Have you ever been in a crowd of people and absolutely missed a per person of importance or famous that was in the room with you that you should have recognized? Has that ever happened to you? Let me tell you about Jay Anderson. You don't know Jay Anderson from Adam, but Jay Anderson was my best friend in junior high. He was my best friend in high school. He was the best man at my wedding. Are you getting the picture of Jay Anderson? And uh, he currently lives out west, so I don't get to see him as much as I used to. But we've kept in contact and intersected with each other. And uh, some years ago, I found myself teaching the Adult Bible Fellowship at our class um, uh, here in the Chicagoland area. And what I didn't know was that Jay was going to make a surprise appearance to our class to knock my socks off in delight as I observed him. He sat, I believe, in the back row with Sherry. And uh, I was on my A game. I was teaching my brains out, totally focused. And I taught the entire class without noticing Jay Anderson as close as you are, Gina. And can you imagine how I felt? Could you imagine how he felt? We're talking about experiencing the presence of God and uh, there are questions that you and I should always ask ourselves on a daily basis if you can remember. Listen to these questions. When was the last time you asked these particular questions? Uh, do I know what the presence of God is? Do I know where it is found? Am I currently experiencing the presence of God? Why or why not? What am I learning about the presence of God and from it? And finally, how am I changing because of it? If you have never asked those questions to yourself or not in the not-so-distant past, I'm suggesting that we need to get in tune with those questions and those answers, and it just happens to be the text for today. Now let's review a little bit. We're in the middle of a series. My retention span is not all that it should be. Sherry is kind enough to remind me of that from time to time, and I appreciate that. But maybe some of you have just popped 
walked in and said, well, here I am. I wonder where we're at and where we're going. So let me get you back to where we started and where we are now. Part one was called the idolatry and idols, and it was about the golden calf. We're in Exodus. And what did we learn? Pastor Jarvis preached, and he told us, first of all, that we need to understand what idolatry is. The definition of idolatry is putting anything ahead of God. And idols are those things that tempt us and maybe drive us to that particular status. I like to look at idols in the vernacular of Clint Eastwood. Bear with me. Clint Eastwood had many, many movies, but one was The Good, The, and The, well, you're with me. I love that. You can feel free to fall asleep now because you've heard all you need to. But I look at idols that way. There are some idols that are just ugly. And uh, in scripture, we learn that the Jewish people created this golden calf. And you're talking right off the bat, as soon as they got these Ten Commandments, immediately, boom, they blow two. That is ugly. Some are not ugly, but they're just bad. So, for example, uh, a, a life or an episode of deception, uh, lying about something, uh, it's maybe not uh, in anyone's mind as grave as breaking the Ten Commandments, but it is still sin and it can be an idol. And the toughest thing to remember is that good things can be idols. I want to stand up to you today and confess that one of my idols over the years has been teaching the Word of God. Can you imagine that? How could that possibly be an idol? And yet, Satan's strategy is always to go for what you will put ahead of God. And over the years, I've seen how much emphasis I've put on teaching rather than just worshiping God for who he is. We also learned with regard to idols and idolatry that sometimes it's two steps forward, two steps back. Uh, the Jews got delivered from Egypt. How cool is that? They're moving away. Egyptians even gave them some gold to send them on their way. And yet as we study them, we see sometimes it's two steps forward and sometimes it's then one or two steps backwards. Do you believe that after a while, of not accomplishing the mission, they said, why aren't we just going back to Egypt? At least we had food there. So I want you to know that we were learning all this stuff in this first sermon from Pastor Craig. And the question for all of us, please listen to the question, was what idols are lurking in our lives ready to capture our attention or our love? It's a fair question. It's an important question that Pastor Jarvis asked us to consider. That was part one. Part two was when he preached on a, a later portion of Exodus, and it was based on the fact that sin has consequences. It exists, and it has consequences. Do you remember that particular sermon? What did we learn? We learned that all sin separates us from God. We learned that any sin is enough to send us to Hell. And what is hell? Total separation from God. Absolutely none of his presence. And the ultimate consequence of sin is death 
unless there's an atonement, a sacrifice, someone paying the price to make it right with God. And we know that that was the effect of Jesus' suffering and his death on the cross to redeem all of us. We learned in this sermon that all sin is sin. It's not comparative. I can look at serial killers. I can look at people that have done heinous crimes and say, well, at least I'm not that bad. And my vernacular may sound like, well, I lied the other day, but it was just a little white lie. Do you see how sometimes we boost ourselves up with regard to our status by minimizing the sin in our own lives? Pastor wanted us to know that. Uh, at the end of Exodus 32, we're going to move on to 33 today, but listen to the consequences of sin. It says at the end of Exodus 32 that God directed, this is God now, God directed the death of about 3,000 men because of their sin. Now, does that sound like the God that you choose to worship? Uh, we're all about the God of love, but are we about the God of holiness? And the last verse in Exodus, if that wasn't enough, 3,000 would have satisfied my sense of justice. It says that the Lord sent a plague upon the people. Why? Because they had made the calf. And then it says the one that Aaron made. Note, uh, before God and the scripture was always talking about God's people this, God's people that, God's people, God's people. But as we read this text with regard to the consequences of sin, we don't see the people listed as God's people. We see them listed as the people. See, read scripture inquisitively and see some of these distinctions that have great meaning. And one more point from that sermon about sin and consequences. I want you to note about leadership. Now, some of you know that you're leaders. You really get it. And some of you suspect you may be leaders. And some of you say, nope, not me. That's for another category. But I want you to see how scripture designated Aaron. It says the calf, the one that Aaron made. No, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. I, we've read the scripture and we know there's a whole bunch of people around and they're casting their ornaments to, to burn and to, and to put into something. Was it Aaron alone that built the calf? No, but who does God choose to demarcate, to designate with regard to this act of the golden calf? It says Aaron. And then finally, and I'll never forget this, pastor said we should view sin as it truly is and grieve all of it. Now, that's a strong statement, but does that describe your sensitivity to sin? So part one and part two, and now we're ready for part three, which is the presence of God. I love reading Exodus because Exodus has all these fantastic dialogues between God and Moses. Just think if you were Moses and all of the time you have the ability uh, to listen, to debate, to argue, to confess with none other than God himself. Have you ever considered that possibility of talking with 
God in that way. That's the presence. And it started at the burning bush. Moses did not expect it, but one day he woke up and boom, there is this talking, burning bush. And did you know that Moses was described as the friend of God? Wouldn't it be cool if you could describe yourself as the friend of God? Good news, believers. You can. When was the last time you considered yourself a friend of God? So Exodus 33 is where we're going today. And there are three scenes that share with us principles that we should learn. Scene number one is called marching orders. And God is going to give the Jews their marching orders after the calf. The second scene is the tent of meeting that describes things that were going on for Moses and some of the people. And the third is Moses' intercession for the people. So keep me on task. We're going to take a look at these three scenes. Scene one, God's marching orders. Exodus 33, one through three. The Lord said to Moses, here we go again. Look at this, intimate dialogue. The Lord said to Moses, depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offsprings, I will give it. Remember a long, long time ago, God and Abraham had this dialogue, and that's what the promise was. Reading on, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Six different groups of people, and you say, I don't have a clue who they are. Know that they were in the promised land, and they hadn't gotten the bulletin that God was going to say, you're toast. They thought everything was going on as normal. And so these six groups are in the promised land, not having a clue as to what is going to face them. But God identifies them. And he goes on and says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But then get this, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. Are you hearing what God is saying? That if I stay in your presence, your sin um, and my holiness are not going to be a pretty sight. And if I stay with you, I fear that I will consume you. So, what's going on in these particular verses? What's the marching orders? Depart. Get moving on. Why? Because they're still in the arena of the golden calf. They're still in the center of that great idolatry. And God says, this is not a place for you. Depart. You're not in the promised land. Get going. Do you ever feel like sometimes you need to be told, depart from a circumstance or a relationship? And, and you say to yourself, why? And in this particular case, the, the, the people may be wondering, why? And God keeps saying, that calf? That calf? That calf? We need at times of our lives to be recalibrated. That is an engineering term. 
and I don't have an engineering bone in my body. But recalibration of an apparatus or a machine is when it's got a little out of whack and it's not performing as it should. God wants sometimes when we're out of whack to be recalibrated. And sometimes he does that by saying to us, move on. It's a change of something for the good, your good. It is repentance in some way. We are engaged sometimes in sin and we're facing it and God says repent and that word repentance is like a 180 degree turn. So stay with me and just visualize I'm in this sin and God's saying no more repent. And he's asking us to turn 180 degrees away from it. Now what does Brent do? I'm pretty cool with 30 degrees or 40 degrees or I'll give you 90 degrees. And God's saying, no, 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 180 degrees. Now, haven't we all been told by people what we're not supposed to do? Haven't we listened to the, the dirty dozen and the nasty 10 and all this stuff? Wouldn't it be good if someone said to you, not only turn away, but turn towards something? And that's what the 180 degrees does, recalibration. So it's depart from Egypt and Mount Sinai, but there's more. Go toward me. I want you to always understand what repentance is. It's not just to go away from something, it's to go toward something. Now, in this particular text, I want you to notice some things. God wants you to be inquisitive readers of the word. Sometimes we just read it and we gloss over it and we don't think about it, but I want to point out some things that gives you the grandeur of God and his word. This mission that's stated here is um, an invitation from the ancestors Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And is that the first time that appears in scripture? No. If you go back to the burning bush, go way back to when Moses was first called, guess what you'll find in chapter 3 of Exodus? You'll see God identifying himself as who? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not once, but twice. So it's the same God for this mission. What about this land flowing with milk and honey? Have you ever heard that before? Go back to the burning bush and guess what God says? I want you to explore and discover a land of milk and honey. And not once, but twice. It's almost like God thinks the Jews are Italian. And I can tell you that, that sometimes we need to hear something more than once. And since I'm 100% Italian, I can say that to anyone I want. But God chooses to record in scripture forever that three times back in Exodus 3. And now he's saying the same thing to him. Oh, you probably forgot that, huh? And if that wasn't enough, you've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you've got the land flowing with milk and honey. But who does he list? He lists six different people groups that are the enemy. Guess what he said back in Exodus 3? He listed the exact same groups. Scripture is consistent, and we need to appreciate it more for that fact. But there's one difference. This is such a significant difference. The original mission, he said, certainly, I will be with you. 
That is in Exodus 3.12. Certainly I will be with you. But did you note the text? He's saying, I'm going to give you some spiritual resources. I'm going to give you an angel. But not me. And so the issue, you see he's framing it, is God's presence or lack of it. And why? This scripture says that these people were stiff-necked people. It appears not only here in these verses, but it appears before and after in the Exodus test. It's almost like God is saying, I'm going to tell you this over and over again until you acknowledge that you are stiff-necked people. You want to know what a stiff-necked person is? Because right now you're thinking, can't be me. Stiff-necked person is someone who, quote, unreasonably determined to have one's own way. Well, I'm so glad that I'm preaching to people that are not stiff-necked and that I confess my sin before you. But you know what? If you've concluded that you're not a stiff-necked person, guess what? You are. <laughs> you are. You're just like me. Sin in the Old Testament uh, permeates the message that God wants to get across. In Psalm 66, 18, he says, if I had cherished iniquity, that's another word for sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. You see the picture of the lack of God's presence? The Lord would not listen. And notice how you're dealing with iniquity. Cherished. Uh, what do you cherish? It's important things, right? I cherish Sherry, and I cherish important people and things. And if, in fact, someone in the Old Testament it, it, it could be reading this, they would say, gee, I wonder what I have cherished in my heart. Maybe some sin. So let's go on. Exodus 33, 4 through 6. Now, the people have heard Moses give this message, okay? And what's their response? When the people heard this disastrous word, time out, what, what type of word does Scripture describe this as? Disastrous. This is not some gentle rebuke. This is not something that is a casual comment. This is a disastrous word. Think of the last time you were in a disastrous circumstance. Serious stuff, huh? When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are stiff-necked people. Same thing. If for, if for a single moment I should go among you, I would consume you. Do you see how strong he's making a statement? Presence of God is what all people should aspire to. And he says, if I'm with you for another moment, I would consume you. Again, does that sound like the God that you worship? It's part of who he is. So, people, now take off your ornaments that you may know what to do, what, so I may know what to do with you. And therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb, Mount Horeb onward. And, and for you that are geographically wondering what's Mount Horeb, it's another name for Mount Sinai. So get out of town. Get away from Mount Sinai and from forward, don't let ornaments capture your heart. Their response was good. It was mourning. It says, none of them put on their ornaments. When do we put on ornaments? 
I think we put on ornaments when we play. When Sherry and I are going out, uh, Sherry might have a few more ornaments than me, and I just accept that as the way women are, but she loves to, to, to dress up and put on ornaments, um, and I'm saying to myself, what happened when the golden calf was being built with these ornaments? It said they threw their ornaments into this fire to make this golden calf, and they played. So I want you to know ornaments are associated with playing. Ornaments are associated with a golden calf, not God's presence. I've got an ornament story. Uh, when I was at the University of Michigan, uh, I was not a Christ follower, and I would say that I was probably 180 degrees from the normal Christian life. And uh, I was a member of a fraternity which uh, had a name on campus as the Animal House. Now, I don't want to tell you any more, but you just, you just draw your own conclusions. And I will add to that, not only was I a member of the Animal House, but I was the social chairman. So, so you get a little feel for where Brent is at. And uh, if you were to look at me during those days, uh, this is the 70s. And while I can't characterize myself totally as a hippie, just visualize bell-bottom jeans for you that are old enough to remember that era, and a tie-dye shirt, and most important, love beads, <laughs> the ornament of the day. And uh, after college, uh, God wooed me to him, and I accepted him as my personal savior, and I found myself up there in Ann Arbor, Michigan again uh, because I had to be there, and I was just going through a quick clothes change on the first floor. I obviously didn't live in the house, but I was in this small room just changing from one gear to another, um, and uh, I don't know how it happened, but it did. As I was pulling off a shirt and to put another shirt on, my hand somehow got caught with the love beads and they ripped and I saw just for a split second those love beads cascading down to the ground that I had valued greatly. What was my first thought? No! What was my second thought? Wait a minute, maybe this is a remnant of my old life. So I want to share with you that I get ornaments and that God purposely ripped it off of my neck, never to be worn again. It's a funny thing about ornaments. In Exodus, it teaches ornaments are used for two things. They're either used for the people, because the ornaments went into the fire to make the calf. But if you read on in Exodus, in Exodus 35, it says the ornaments were given as a sacrifice to God. So you see, the ornaments are not evil per se, they can be used for the right purpose or the wrong purpose, but both of them are graphically demonstrated in Exodus. Dwell with me for a second about the holiness of God. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Never forget not only the love of God, but the holiness of God. He cannot tolerate sin. And that's what makes Jesus and his act on the cross so important. The people's response 
we're moving maybe in the right direction now. It says from Mount Horeb onward, they weren't going to wear the ornaments. That's scene one, depart. Scene two, scene two is called the tent of meeting. Let's read. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door. Notice whose tent door? Their tent door. And watch Moses until he had gone into the tent, his tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship. But then it adds, each at his own tent door. So, so what's going on here? Where is this taking place? Scripture starts out by telling that he pitched his tent where? Outside the camp. And so you say, eh, 15, 20 feet, uh, 30 yards, um, 60 yards. No, notice the text. Outside the camp, far off from the camp. Why? Because sin was still the issue of the day. And that was not what the presence of God was looking for. By the way, it says later again that it was outside the camp. I love how God tries to get us to see what he's telling us. And repetition is one of the great ways of teaching. It was outside the camp because the people did not want God's presence. Where were they worshiping? They were worshiping at their tents. It said that some went to the tent Praise God for those people, but I sense the majority just hung around at their tent. Uh, maybe someone was in their tent and, and someone, maybe a wife or someone says, hey, Moses is going to his tent. And, oh, I better get up. But did they go to the tent? No, they just sort of went outside and sort of perused what was happening. That's not the presence of God at work. Strong statement. God wouldn't waste his presence on those who didn't want to worship him. But those who did want to worship him, he did. So where was God? I believe that God was in the tent. Why was that? Did you see the reference to the pillar of cloud? Remember the time when they're wandering around, there's two things going on, uh, fire, pillar of clouds, that was evidence that God was with him. And so I believe that that tent manifested God's presence at that particular point of time. Let's read on. Exodus 33:11. Thus the Lord used to speak, this is what's going on in this tent of meeting, face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. What do we get out of this? Well, first of all, what was going on in the tent? It was God speaking to Moses. Can you imagine that? And yet, fast forward today to the access that you have to speak to God anytime, anywhere, for any reason, and it's acceptable to him. It says, 
God and Moses were speaking face to face. Well, let's not get confused here. God doesn't have a face. So what's going on? The writer is using this as sort of like an idiom or an illustration or, or a way to describe their intimacy. Face to face is a big deal, right? When you're with someone important in your life and you're dialoguing meaningfully, aren't you just looking at each other and maybe deeply into their eyes, but it's face to face. And notice what else it says. As a man speaks to his friend, not his enemy, not his stranger, but to a friend. So think of the last time you had a good conversation with a close person to you, a friend. Think about how animated you were. Think about how it made you feel enriched. That's what's going on. That's the presence of God. There's one other fact that's referenced in verse 11. It mentions another person. Did you notice that? Joshua. So what's going on here? Joshua, the son of Nun. What's Moses doing with Joshua? Let me tell you what I believe he's doing with Joshua in that tent. He is discipling him. He is mentoring him. He is coaching him because Moses, I believe, had some sense that Joshua was the heir apparent. And what does it say about Joshua? This is something that I would want to capture my essence. If ever there's a legacy or a tombstone, uh, I, I would love for Joshua's to be mine. It said Joshua would not depart from the tent. He recognized the presence of God as the most important thing for his future mission. It's contrasted with Aaron, isn't it? What did it say earlier about Aaron? The one who made the calf. So where are you on the spectrum of Aaron who made the calf to Joshua who would not depart from the tent? And, and if you're at either end, I'm saying that's not realistic, but you're somewhere on the spectrum, would you please find yourself and ask God to move you one tick closer to Joshua and one tick farther away from Aaron. Why does scripture say the son of Nun? Why couldn't it just say Joshua? Well, names are important and heritage is important, but God wants to make sure that when you open up Joshua 1, that you know that the Joshua that's being described in that whole book named after him is the same Joshua that was in the tent because it says in verse 1 of Joshua 1, Joshua the son of Nun. Let's do a little self-analysis. Permit me to meddle with you and with me. Is that okay? And I'm not waiting for an answer. But, but, but permit me to meddle with you a little bit. I want you to find yourself. First of all, with regard to today. Today, would you put yourself in the category of experiencing God's presence often and always seeking it? That, that's one category. Second, well, I've experienced it from time to time, but maybe not so much right now. Uh, maybe I've grown a little less sensitive, a little unaware, maybe a little colder to the prospect of his presence. It's possible that there's someone in this room or someone online that has never experienced the presence of God. Find yourself there. 
Or if you'd rather use the text, let's do that. There's a spectrum on the text. First of all, um, you're like the creators of the golden calf. You had had it with God, and you could care less about his opinion, and you were going to make your own God. Or, not so bad, but stiff-necked, certainly, about certain issues that come from pride. Well, maybe not that, but I'm hankering to just stay by my tent. It's my comfort zone. I'm not going to go to this tent where Moses and this pillar of cloud is. I'm going to stay here and sort of check things out a little bit cautiously. Or maybe um, you are someone that has occasionally sought God. I'm mindful that desperate times call for desperate measures. And if the only time that you are seeking out God is in a moment of emergency or depressy, you are missing the abundant life. Or maybe you're like Joshua, that you really committed that you don't ever want to leave his presence. Or maybe you're sort of like Moses, that had dialogue beyond measure with the holy God. That's scene two, the tent of meeting. One more scene. Three scenes in an act. Pastor got three points always. Well, except for Pastor Craig. And he has maybe a fourth point, and we'll give him that, okay? But three scenes. Third scene is Moses' intercession. Let's read on. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, this is Moses talking to God now, Bring up this people but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, Moses, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Now, God, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Oh, and by the way, God, consider too that this nation is not just the people. This nation is your people. He's interceding. Do you guys understand what intercession is? It's not a word that's used all the time, but intercession means to plead or make a request on behalf of another or others. And this is not the first time Moses has done this. He's done it earlier in Exodus 32 twice. He is always going, I gotta go to God and see if I can make things right for the people. And what was Moses' appeal? It was based on his special relationship with God. He said two things. First of all, he said, um, known by name. Do you realize that you are known by God, by name? I love God the Father revealed in Psalm 139. The psalmist writes, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You are acquainted with all my ways, not just some, all my ways. And get this in terms of intimacy, for you formed my inward parts and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. You think that's not knowledge? That's a beautiful picture of the Christian. And if that wasn't enough from God the Father, but think about Jesus. He says in John 10 that he's the good shepherd. Have you stopped for a moment and thought about what that means? If you look in John 10, it says the sheep, Jesus talking, the sheep. Who are the sheep? Bah. 
the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. Do you realize that? Sherry, he knows you by name. Bah! That is being known. It was also argued by Moses that God had found favor with him. And uh, what's that all about? Uh, we got Old Testament, we got New Testament, but I want to equate you to a doctrine in the New Testament that's really important theology, which may not be something you're totally clear about or have heard about. It's a fancy word called imputation. And let me explain to you what imputation is that is true of every believer. Imputation is an accounting term. Accountants um, have ledgers, and in the ledgers they put accounts of things, money and other things, and, and uh, from time to time they change them from one account to another. Before you who accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you had an account, and guess what that was in that account? It was one sin after another, and God would see all this sin in your life. Imputation says that because of Jesus Christ's act on the cross, his death and resurrection, God has graciously and marvelously taken all that sin, every hint of it that's in your account, and moved it to a different account. Guess whose account he put it in? Jesus' account, so that when he died, he bore all our sin. He took all the sin from our account. And if you were to look at the account, you'd say, no sin. Say, that's a good deal. That is having found favor with God. But there's more. It's sort of like one of those infra commercials where you hear something and then you say, but there's more. So now you got nothing in your account? Wrong. What you have in your account now is beyond my comprehension. It says, by imputation, the righteousness of no less than Jesus has been put into your account. Isn't that incredible? Anyone who hears that and just says, my, that's interesting, is dead. Think about that. Think about that. That when God looks down on the believer, he sees Jesus. So, Moses had a right to make an appeal because he was known by name, but also he had favor with God. And by the way, the nation Moses reminds God of is God's people. Do you think this petition delighted God? This petition that Moses interceded for? Do you think that made God smile? Yes, without a shadow of a doubt. And here's why I say that. Jeremiah 9.23 says, hey, if you're going to boast about something, let's make sure you're boasting about the right thing. It says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him boast, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. So which of these cards did Moses play when he was pleading for the people? Did he play the card of wisdom? No. Did he play the card of might? No. Did he play the card of riches? No. He played the fourth card, which is that he is trying to know God more. 
In Exodus 33:14, God answers and says, guess what? Changed my mind. Angel ain't enough. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Isn't that incredible? Orienting right to God's presence. And unless you stop just with, I'll give you my presence, don't miss the last phrase, and I will give you rest. Rhetorical question, who here needs rest? Who here is in turbulence? Who here is out of control circumstances or otherwise? And I'm telling you that God's presence will give you rest. It's not my idea. So if you're bent out of shape, frozen, out of control, wacko, know that the secret to restoration is God's presence. God agrees to his intercession. God had only promised an angel, but now he's changed his mind. That was not good enough for Moses. That was not good enough for Moses. Read on, Exodus 33, 15, and 16. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, he's talking to God, if your presence will not go with me, I'm going to pout. Nope, if your presence is not good with me, I'm going to be ticked at you. Nope. Remember, he's the one who's called to lead the people to the promised land. He says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Is that an incredible statement? All that Moses had been born for, wired for. And Moses says, if you're not there, don't want to go. Read on. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Do you see what he's saying is the chief characteristic of God's people? The ultimate meaning of life. It is your going with us. Never forget that's what God teaches here in Exodus. You're going with us. And Moses ain't moving without God's presence. And just a sidebar with regard to you leaders. You may be leading something large or small, but it is a powerful word to all leaders and for those leading large constituencies or just maybe a family or whoever, um, this is something that is important for every leader to understand. If you lead without God's presence, you're not leading the way God has called you to lead. Postscript. Well, did God grant Moses' intercession? No, I have to take a liberty here because the text says 1 through 16. Can't stop there. Verse 17, it's for next week's sermon, but what does it say? It says in 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Isn't it interesting you repeated the same thing? We always like to end with some so what, so let me give you three. The first is, the presence of God is the most important issue in our lives. Psalm 84, 11 through 12 says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Why does the scripture say tents? Maybe they want to get us back to Exodus where tents was an issue. Moses' tent or them. You see, distance us from God happens every time we 
sin. And let me share this. I believe that the closer presence that you have with God will have more conviction of your sin. How do I know that? That there's a relationship between the presence of God and your conviction of your sin. Just come with me to Isaiah 6. He's in the temple or wherever he is having a vision and God's there. And what does he say? He says, oh my, woe is me. And he confesses sin. And then if that wasn't enough, he confesses the sin for his entire people. The closer you get to God, the more conviction you'll have with regard to your sin. Let me share with you four quick ways that you might consider approaching the presence of God. First of all is to acknowledge his omnipresence. That's a big word, omnipresence, but since it has the text and the title of the sermon in it and it's omni, you need to know that's always present. It says in uh, Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit. I can never escape your presence. Um, if I'm in heaven or I'm in Sheol, which was, by the way, one of the deepest concepts geographically of earth where the dead went, supposedly. So you've got heaven and a place where dead people lay, or you've got high or lows. You're always there. Notice what it says. It says, if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, the farthest place from anything else. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So one is acknowledge his omnipresence. The second is to diligently seek him. Uh, come with me to the Jews that are in exile and uh, they need a good word from God. And Jeremiah the prophet says, call on me, come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you. So not only acknowledge his omnipresence, but diligently seek him. Three, surrender to the Holy Spirit. Scripture teaches for Christians, it's in you. It's indwelt in you. But that doesn't release its power. Being filled and controlled by it, surrendering to it, gives you that power and that presence. So acknowledge his omnipresence, diligently seek him, and surrender to the indwelling Holy Spirit. And finally, be obedient to God's will because that will lead you to his presence. How does that work? These are Jesus' own words. These words are found in John 14 and says, Jesus saying to his people who will listen, listen, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And if you love me and keep my commandments, I and my Father will reveal myself to you. So maybe the, the contra is true. To the extent you're not obeying me, I'm not going to be manifesting and revealing myself to you. And then it adds the most amazing thing. If you obey, the more you obey, the more the Father and Jesus himself will make their home with you. You talk about God's presence making their home with you. Number two, humility is the key to God's presence. God opposes the proud. Uh, James 4, 6 through 8 says, God opposes the proud and God gives grace to the humble. Draw near to God, there's the presence issue, and he will draw near to you. Did you know that God hates things? In Proverbs, 
there's a passage that says he hates six and then the author of Proverbs says, no, 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 wait a minute, I was wrong, it's seven. Hates seven things. And you know what the first thing is that he hates? It says that he hates haughty eyes. Now, I don't know if you know what the word haughty means, but haughty means uh, very, very proud. So um, I would share with you that we should be seeking humility through the grace of God to seek and find his presence. Number three and finally, we are to be like a Moses interceding for others in our lives. How would you compare your concern for the important people in your life with Moses and his concern for the Jews? Are you praying constantly, fervently for others? We're told in scripture uh, that uh, Jesus uh, is the perfect intercessor for us. We're told in scripture that the Holy Spirit sometimes intercedes for us. We're told as Christians we are to intercede. Favorite verse, there is no doubt about this. 1 Timothy 2.1. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Is there any doubt? What's the first phrase? First of all, so if you want to know what's the high priority, it's praying for other people. And if that wasn't enough, he sort of gives you multiple um, words to describe prayer. He talks about prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving, and he also talks about supplications. Don't know if you know what that word means, but it's the same thing. It's making a request, but here's the deal with a supplication. It's reflected by two characteristics. Humility and an earnest spirit. So you and I are told to be intercessors in a humble and earnest way. Can we ask God to teach us to be so absorbed by him and his purposes that you will know when and how to persist in prayer for others? Can we ask for that? How do you show that you want to get to know God better? How much do you persist in prayer and I until God reveals himself to us in a deeper way? You taken this seriously, am I? There was Jay Anderson, right, just right in front of me. And I never saw him. And I wonder sometimes whether that's the way with God's presence and me. His presence is a certainty for Christians a perfect source of current encouragement, courage, and conviction. And so my prayer for you and for me, I'm interceding now, is that God may dominate our vision, that he may be seen up close and on the horizon, his presence always recognized and acknowledged. Amen.